When the bodies start to pile up, the killer's modus operandi is the first thing sparking investigators' interest. Similarities between cases may lead them to believe it's not random happenstance, but the bloody pursuit of a serial killer. And sometimes it's not as simple as a gunshot wound or bound hands, or that the victims all have a certain look. Some homicides are even more horrifying, and the details of today's case will make even the most hardened true crime fans gasp. My name is M. William Phelps. I'm an investigative journalist and true crime author. I've dedicated the past 20 years of my life to helping families of the missing and murdered. Join me. We're crossing the line. And I'd just like to start out with a warning to listeners about this one right here. It's going to get very sadistic and very gruesome. It's a case that has always plagued me. Maybe haunted is even a better word. And I, I think we need to remind ourselves that not all true crime comes in neat little dateline-like packages where a husband kills his wife in suburban white America. Today, we focus on marginalized victims whose stories are sometimes forgotten. This week's case begins near 8.30 a.m. on August 26, 1985, with the discovery of a bizarre, grotesque sight shocking workers at the Southeast Pennsylvania Transportation Authority rail yard. This is the Frankfurt section of Philly, made most popular by Sylvester Stallone in the film Rocky. Northeast Philly, close to the Delaware River, which is a very densely populated section of the city. Naked from the waist down, a middle-aged woman is found propped up in the rail yard with her legs spread open, her shirt pulled up over her breasts to expose them and her genitalia. There is so much blood, it's hard to make out her features. What's clear is that she has been out in the elements for quite some time. Why no one has found her for days, nobody knows. Was she killed somewhere else and moved here? It seems no one can answer that question. She is so brutally maimed and has been dead for at least a week, it's difficult at first to even identify her. The woman has been stabbed over, get this, 45 times. On her head, right arm, abdomen, and all over her chest. She has been methodically slashed, surgically cut, is more like it, across her stomach, exposing her internal organs. This is horror movie serial killer shit. A dreadful crime scene beyond what anyone could have ever imagined. She has been sexually assaulted and there are so many stab wounds on her body, any number of which could have been fatal the coroner has a hard time distinguishing which wound is the one that took her life. Seven days before this discovery, on August 19th, 52-year-old Helen Patton walks out of her home she shared with her ex-husband, Kermit, in Parkland. And this is about 12 miles from Frankfurt and this particular crime scene. Helen has been a regular in the Frankfurt area for some time now. She knows lots of local people. Kermit says this is the last time he ever saw Helen. Soon, 
it is confirmed that the rail yard body is indeed Helen Patton. Jeez, this is like real shit here, Phelps. Yeah, this is a this is a hard one, you know? This is a tough one. But again, it's important I think to tell the story because of the victims. Totally. In this case. And that is the made for podcasting voice of my producer, Catherine Law. Hi Phelps. And I'll say this, Catherine. Listeners of this show hear me talk a lot about serial killers and how they are so unlike the Hollywood and glamorized media, social media version of them. But there are anomalies, extremely rare as they are, and this week's case focuses on one of those erratic, rare monsters. In many ways, Helen Patton's killer, who is just getting started, is that made-for-TV version of the nominal serial killer we routinely run into out in the field. He is the vicious, sadistic boogeyman. The type of killer we scratch our heads over and wonder where all of the brutality derives from. You know, like one of those Ed Gaines or Dahmers of the world. And in some respects, this guy reminds me of Jack the Ripper. And it's almost as if he is intentionally channeling the famous English serial murderer. Let's look at where he is choosing to kill. And this is very important to the rest of our story. Frankfurt is an area of Philly, only about 2.6 miles squared. Yet within that small space, there are like 70,000 people. Almost three times as many per square mile as the rest of the city. Picture those brick row houses we tend to associate with Philly, one right after the other. This is a thickly populated small community of hard working class people, many of whom care about the neighborhood they call home. It almost goes against the belief that serial killers do everything they can not to get caught. This guy is definitely taunting the police and the public saying, look at what I can do right under your nose. Come and catch me. Moving around such a small area like Frankfurt with so many people out and about, well, this invites a major risk of being identified, of being seen. Yet it doesn't seem to bother or deter him. But we'll get to more on that later. Let's continue with the narrative. Helen Patton is the first known victim of this guy. The next, found just about five months later on January 1986, is 68-year-old Anna Carroll. He's a sporadic murderer, killing for sexual pacification, of course, but also for the fucking sport of it, which is very scary and very much puts residents in this area on high alert. Anna is found inside her apartment near the 1400 block of Rittner Street, which is in South Philly, several miles south of the rail yard, not even in Frankfurt. She is discovered because the door to her apartment has been left open, and being the middle of winter, this seemed kind of odd. Inside her bedroom, Anna is found on the floor, naked from the waist down, a kitchen knife lodged in her back. She has been stabbed six times in the back. But then something very telling. Her killer cut her from the groin all the way up to her breastbone. And he did it post-mortem, after death. 
he basically gutted this poor woman like a fish. Jeez. So, you know, other than the way they were murdered, is there anything else connecting these two victims? I mean, the fact that one was found outside and one was found inside, I would imagine as an investigator might lead you to think these are two different people. That's a good question. And there is. Helen and Anna were both known to frequent a place called Goldie's, the Golden Bar on Frankfurt Avenue. And both women lived outside of Frankfurt. Police begin to suspect a connection between the two, though they are not yet looking at the cases as being the work of a serial killer. Hmm. And they are certainly not mentioning those words to the media. They're interested in a connection, but it is 1986, don't forget, and serial killer profiling and task force type of investigation is not a focal point as of yet in some departments. Still, as word about the gruesomeness of the murders begins to spread, the media picks up on the two cases. The Philadelphia Inquirer puts together a few similarities, but police are still not yet willing to come out and say the city has a serial killer on the loose. About a year after Anna is murdered, Christmas Day, 1986, 64-year-old Susan Alzef's apartment door is discovered open on Richmond Street in downtown Philly. Inside, Susan is found in her bedroom with six stab wounds in her back. She has been a regular at Goldie's in Frankfurt for quite some time. So all three women, all three are regulars at Goldie's in Frankfurt. Police, I'm guessing, if they've been asking friends and family about their local haunts, have to believe that this is a serial killer, right? You would think, right? But these three murders, I'll just say here, are only the beginning. This guy is about to get busy, even more sadistic and even more brutal, before Philadelphia police finally come out and admit they might have a serial killer problem in the city, a killer who seems to be going after women who frequent a particular area of town, one specific bar, and are a bit down on their luck and very vulnerable. Let's take a break and come right back. We have three victims, all killed in a brutal and merciless fashion with a tie to one specific area of the city and one particular bar, Goldie's. Philly definitely has a serial killer lurking about, a killer who is mimicking, in some respects, Jack the Ripper. He comes out at night, he finds a vulnerable woman, he might follow her home, surprise her, or rape, and then slash her very violently in what appears to be a frenzied attack. I mean, if these women are all at the same bar, does he know them? That is definitely possible. And I would say, if I'm looking at this case as a profiler, even probable. The one thing that is clear from a profiling perspective is that this killer hates a particular type of woman. That is emphatically clear by the way in which he kills. He is punishing these women for some reason. And that punishment, I'll note here, is about to get much, much worse. To coin his first name correctly, police refer to him as the Serial Slasher. He has been called the Frankfurt Slasher over the years, but that nickname comes much later. Between 1986, the first murder, and January 1989, the Serial Slasher targeting the Frankfurt section of Philly amasses 
seven victims. In just the three and a half years that he has been killing, police have not a single clue as to who he might be. By mid-January 1989, when he strikes again, police are beyond confounded. His most recent victim is Teresa Scortino, 30, found on January 19, 1989, just off Frankfurt Avenue inside her home. Teresa is discovered completely naked save for a pair of socks. She is said to have been butchered, found in a large pool of her own blood on the kitchen floor of her apartment. The coroner counts 25 slash marks across her face, chest, and arms. In this case, and please forgive the brutality of this, but it is what happened. He used a three-foot-long piece of wood, part of a door jam, to sexually assault her. He left his knife in the sink and a bloody footprint on the floor near her body. What is interesting to me about this murder is that the medical examiner at the time came out and said he does not think the city has a serial killer because serial killers murder at a much faster rate. Oh, good thing the medical examiner knows how, you know, serial killers operate. Exactly what I was thinking. Yeah. Um, I think medical examiners should stick to examining medical shit when it comes to profiling murderers right. or at least making their opinions about these cases public. It's disingenuous and does not do anything to serve the investigation. Yeah, they're not psychologically profiling these guys. And, and again, all these women have commonalities. Before Teresa is murdered, Margaret Vaughn, 66, is found on November 11, 1988, just a few blocks away from where Teresa is found. Margaret is discovered inside the apartment building where she lived, in a hallway. She has been stabbed 29 times all over her body. Before those two murders, on January 8th, 1987, 28-year-old Jean Durkin, a mother of four and the youngest of the slasher's known victims, is found. Jean was homeless and known to sleep on the street near Goldie's Bar. Her body is spotted under a storage truck behind a fruit and vegetable stand very close to Goldie's, about a block or so from where the slasher's first known victim, Helen Patton, was found in that rail yard. Jean has been sexually assaulted and stabbed approximately 76 times in her back, buttocks, and chest. Her body is posed, and she is naked from the waist down with her legs spread apart. The newspaper reports that her face has been severely beaten. You know, to stab somebody 76 times, I think about this a lot when we're going through cases like this. You'd have to obviously be filled with so much hatred, but you'd also have to kind of lose control. And at that point, is it even basically stabbing a body or are you just like going through these motions to like express your rage? It's so once you get past the point of killing someone, the rest of that is just it's a physical expression. It is. It's an inherent expression. I've spoken to serial killers specifically about this. like. Okay, you strangled this person. They were dead. But then you beat them right. and beat them and beat them. Why? Mm -hmm. Well, they're beating the hurt, mm -hmm. right? They're beating the person 
that hurt them the most. And they don't even realize it. So it's that internal rage that just pops out of them and they cannot stop. Right. Is it like a blackout? It's not a blackout. It's complete internal rage. Mm -hmm. You know, we talk about how much interest there is in true crime. And there's even a debate trying to find legs today about how much is too much. That Netflix Dahmer series got hammered by some critics of the genre. But look, in 1987, after word spread of Jean Durkin's murder and where she is found, for days and days, people walk by and stop to gawk, a reporter writes, at the bloodstains on the ground and spattered on the side of the truck and on a wooden fence. Of course, we've always been fascinated by murder and true crime. And like nowadays, it's finally OK to admit it. Bingo. I mean, that that's it in a nutshell. We have been fascinated by true crime since time began. Mm -hmm. We're interested in why somebody takes another life, but we're really remarkably fascinated by somebody who would take several lives, right? And the more bloody, the more interest, you know? The more gruesome, the more interest. Right. I know from being a true crime writer that the most gruesome books ever written sell the most. Yeah. And I mean, you think there is something in our human nature that does want to, you know, stop and stare at the accident to watch the house burn down. I mean, of course, think about like not that long ago, people would go to hangings. They would go to, you know, the deaths of people who were being torn apart. You know, It's, It's in our nature, but we do hold responsibility as true crime content providers to tell it Mm -hmm. and show it the right way and not sensationalize Mm -hmm. these killers. Right. Jean's mother commenting on her daughter's murder and the other murdered women tells the Philadelphia Inquirer this. This has changed everyone. It makes you realize how vulnerable you are and that you don't have any control over a situation. Ain't that the truth? Realizing they have a serial murder problem on their hands in the city, police decide to step back in time to see if they can attribute any unsolved murders to the slasher. And a name comes up as they begin, Catherine Jones. Captain Robert Grasso, the head of the Philadelphia PD homicide unit, tells the press this, quote, I'd be foolish to say I can rule the Catherine Jones case out, end quote. So they dig in. Catherine Jones had been waitressing for a few bars along Frankfurt Avenue over the years and was 29 at the time of her murder. Back in January 1987, her partially clothed, frozen body was found in the Northern Liberty section of the city, which is basically the same area as all the others. Catherine had been known to hang out at Goldie's. Unlike his previous victims, however, Catherine's jaw is broken by blunt force trauma and her skull is crushed, which caused her death. And Catherine Jones has not been stabbed. So just to recap the similarities, all of the slasher's victims are white women, all have ties in some respect to the strip along Frankfurt Avenue, all have been brutalized and stabbed, with the exception of Catherine Jones. You know, if Catherine Jones was significantly before all of these other murders, then that shows us that escalation kind of like in reverse as we're looking back in time. Right. That's a great point. 
to make. So Catherine Jones, if she's the first victim, you know, he's just starting out. So it makes sense that he brutalizes her and he beats her to death and crushes her skull, but he doesn't stab her, Mm -hmm. right? And this is what we talk about when we talk about the evolution of a serial killer, how serial killers, their crimes, their brutality, how they kill, the weapons they use, it evolves. Mm -hmm. The important thing about a serial killer who stabs his victims, I hear from forensic psychologists, is that the knife acts as, quote, surrogate for something else, end quote. It's not the optimal way in which to commit a murder in a clean and quick manner. If someone wants to leave less evidence behind, they use a gun. So as a killer not wanting to get caught, you are risking a lot by stabbing someone. But more than that, a few stab wounds will almost certainly kill a victim. So any more than four or five tells us about the internal rage we mentioned earlier and a hatred the killer has bubbling up inside him. Add a sexual element to the crimes, and as I have been told by very smart people, the knife, especially if the killer stabs the victim anywhere near her groin, acts as a, quote, surrogate penis, end quote, in lieu of impotence or being less well endowed, shall we say. And here, with the slasher, what we have is a guy sexually assaulting some of his victims, but not others. And in some cases, he uses excessive brute force to sexual assault and then uses the knife to methodically cut them so their innards are exposed. He is indeed telling us a lot about who he is by the way he kills. That's a lot, folks. That is a lot. So let's take a break once more, come back and discuss additional victims and find out who might be committing these horrific crimes against women. Something happens in April 1990 that kind of changes the dynamic of the ongoing slasher killings. By now, a group of investigators tasked with focusing on the slasher cases are pouring through cold cases to look for any other connections to the slasher homicides. And they do this for good reason. Suppose they come to an unsolved murder and someone who saw something was interviewed. Maybe a suspect was questioned. They can now go back and question that guy again. And so, as they begin to consider the Catherine Jones case being connected to the others, a call comes in for a burglary in progress, which is a common occurrence for city cops, of course. Yet the cop who answers this call is walking in an alley in Frankfurt when he comes across 46-year-old Carol Dowd. Miss Dowd's body has been left in an alley on Frankfurt Avenue, directly behind a popular local spot, Newman's Seafood Market. Carol is found nude, her clothes nearby. She has been stabbed 36 times in the back, chest, neck, and face. Unlike previous slasher victims, Carol has defensive wounds on her hands. She fought for her life. Dowd is also sadly gutted. Her intestines displayed in a graphic, horrific visual scene. Her murder took place between 1 and 2 a.m., 
that same medical examiner soon decides, though he never says how he came to conclude such a small window of time. And falling in line with what a serial killer of the slasher's caliber is expected to do, escalate his behavior, it is discovered that he cut one of Carol Dowd's nipples off. Like a few of his previous victims, Carol Dowd had spent time in an institution and struggled with mental illness. The slasher, it is confirmed by then, is mostly preying upon this type of vulnerable, marginalized victim. What happens here, though, is that police zero in on a suspect for Carol Dowd's murder, a fishmonger named Leonard Christopher, working at the seafood store Carol is found behind. He is questioned after witnesses in the area claim to have seen him with Carol near the place her body was found just before she was murdered. Leonard Christopher, a black man, wears glasses, those thick, black-drimmed type made popular in the 60s. He's about six feet tall, well-built, with a slight gut hanging over his belt. He has a mustache. His hair is tightly cropped. Some people hanging out near the store call him Chris the Pest. He had been known to panhandle in the streets, mostly begging people for cigarettes and beer before getting the job as a fish filleter. Others call him Fat Albert, King of the Mooches. As in Fat Albert, hey, hey, hey. <laughs> hey, hey, hey. <laughs> Fat Albert is a cartoon character from an inner city Philly neighborhood who hangs out with a group of urban adolescents, mainly at a junkyard. The show was created, produced, and voiced by Bill Cosby, who turned out to be, we now know, a scumbag preying on women of his own caliber. Yeah, pretty gross. Customers at Newman Seafood say Leonard Christopher is polite and never bothers anyone. He is known to drink a lot, though, and often smells of booze inside the store. Some say he's never had a girlfriend. After getting the job, he changed his ways a bit, cleaned up, got his own apartment nearby to the store. He'd been in the area about five years. When police questioned Leonard about the other murders, after getting information he was with Carol Dowd, he refuses to talk to them about any of it. And why would he? If I'm sitting there and you shine a light in my face and you're asking me about the slasher murders, I'm going to zip it. I'm not saying a thing either. Interesting aside here, a composite had been circulated about a year before, not long after Carol Dowd's body is found. It's drawn up after cops conducted interviews with people in the area who claimed to have seen a man with victim Teresa Scortino only hours before she was murdered. The composite depicts three different white men, one with those popular aviator serial killer glasses of the 80s with the large lenses. He's balding. He's maybe 50. The other wore black-drimmed Zodiac-like glasses, had a very strange, even scary face receding hairline, and he's maybe 40. The other wore a hunting hat, had small framed glasses, large nose, and he's perhaps late 50s. These three composite drawings are very distinctive and display very different particular features. What's more, police then locate a guy who was with Teresa just before she was murdered, question him, and let him go. The guy matches one of the composites, then other witnesses come forward to claim to have seen this same white guy 
with several of the other victims. But cops put all their effort into 38-year-old suspected killer Leonard Christopher, who finds himself facing a judge and jury in November 1990. His lawyer says Leonard is being targeted because of pressure from the community, politicians, and the media. He says that Leonard is no killer, just a scapegoat. He thinks there is a racially motivated hit job happening simply to curb anxiety over the slasher. You think? I mean, it. this stuff always drives me nuts because if you don't catch the right guy, these things are going to still continue happening. Like, the point should be to actually catch the killer, not make it seem like you caught the killer. Yeah, even if you're trying to curb anxiety of the public and you tunnel vision into the wrong guy, right? the killer's still out there. Exactly. So you're curbing anxiety for what? For nothing. The judge cautions the lawyer saying, we're trying one case here, meaning Carol Dowd's murder. Phelps, this is, it's crazy to be focusing just on one murder. I know they have to try one thing at a time, but to just discount all of these other horrific murders that have been going on? Well, yeah. I mean, they, they are charging Leonard Christopher with Carol Dowd's murder, thinking this is going to stop the frenzy that's going on in the city about this slasher who everyone is just terrified of. And remember, this is the height of the nickname serial killer era, mm-hmm. when Bundy and Dahmer are names that send chills down people's spines and just scare the shit out of everybody. This trial is a frenzy. They are desperate to pin the slasher murders on someone. They had other suspects they questioned and let go. And we'll get to that very shortly. Leonard Christopher, though, is the one guy they cannot let go of, at least for Carol Dowd's murder. And if he did kill Carol, considering the crime scene and her wounds, look, he has to be at least considered for the others. So what do we know about Leonard? What kind of guy is he? Well, he's a little bit aloof and erratic. For example, on the day Carol Dowd's body is found, he walks around the general area sharing the news with anyone who will listen, openly telling people all the gruesome details. I mean, frankly, that sounds like me. But also, (laughs) we have a quote. Uh, One store clerk says, the day it happened, he's in here telling everybody about it, how they found her, like he was bragging, everybody asking him questions. Then there's this, though. At 9 a.m. the morning after Carol's murder, Leonard went into work and told his boss, quote, a white woman had been killed, stabbed multiple times and mutilated in the alley behind the store. Yet cops had not shared any of that information with anyone by that time. But here's the thing. He had no record of being arrested and was given an honorable discharge from the U.S. Navy. Mm Mm-hmm. As more people testify, a story emerges of Leonard Christopher being seen leaving the bar with Carol Dowd and walking with her in that alley, quote, seconds before hearing a woman scream, end quote. Another witness testifies that Leonard came out of the alley just after 1 a.m., quote, sweating profusely with his shirt over his arm and a Rambo knife with a compass in his belt, end quote. Looking at Leonard Christopher's statement to police, though, a contradiction arises. He says he, in fact, has a girlfriend and was with her on the night Carol Dowd was murdered. He also says he and his girlfriend were standing at the door of his apartment when they saw a, quote, stout white man, 
end quote, near the alley near the time Carol Dowd was murdered. Police questioned his, quote, girlfriend, but she says she absolutely was not with him on that night, and so they couldn't have seen this white man. There is blood found on Leonard Christopher's pants after a search of his apartment, but the sample is so small they cannot type it. Besides that one droplet of blood and, oh, hey, some crack cocaine, nothing else that could be considered forensics is found linking him to Carol's murder. The prosecution presents no physical evidence at the trial, no murder weapon, no blood, no hairs, no fingerprints, no carpeting or clothing fibers of any sort. That testimony from the two main witnesses placing Leonard Christopher at the scene, the two women were convicted sex workers with 35 arrests between them. Hmm. So, I mean, one could imagine they could have been coerced into giving a statement. (sighs) One could imagine that, yes, indeed. Yet Leonard Christopher is found guilty of murdering Carol Dowd and sentenced to life. I was railroaded, he says, as he is handcuffed and taken from court after the verdict. I did not kill Carol Dowd. I did not even know Carol Dowd. I was implicated by sex workers, that is, pipers, the police put up. Hmm. But see, here's the thing about putting the slasher murders on Leonard Christopher. As he is in jail, awaiting trial that September, something gruesome happens. No way. Yes way. There's this building maintenance guy who is doing his rounds in an apartment building right there on Arrett Street in the thick of the slasher murder area, and he smells something horrible coming from an apartment. No way! He walks in, 38-year-old Michelle Martin, dead for two days, has been stabbed 23 times. Same exact MO. Face, back, head, she's posed. It is the slasher's work or a very clever copycat. There is no doubt about it. I mean, this is what we were talking about. If you have a scapegoat, it doesn't fix the problem. That's exactly what we were talking about. Yep. People who know Michelle Martin claim she was seen two nights previously walking through the area in two bars with a stout white man. The Northeast stalker is still out there killing people, Leonard Christopher says, as he is walked away from the courtroom on the day of his sentencing. Oh, that's awful timing. Years later, a sergeant working the cases is asked about Leonard Christopher, and he says this. We thought for a while he was the guy. Apparently not. The murders did stop in 1990, however, after Leonard went to prison. And maybe the actual murderer decided to stop once he heard Leonard was in prison so as to not blow his cover, but he didn't realize Leonard was in jail during that last murder. That all said, however, since Leonard Christopher has been in prison, There have been no known slasher murders police can attribute to the guy who terrorized and murdered eight women in the city for years. Beyond the Carol Dowd murder, no additional arrests have been made in the slasher murders. One might reckon that if Leonard Christopher had murdered all of those women in such brutal, savage ways, so extraordinarily violent, some sort of evidence even just one piece of physical or forensic evidence would have been left behind. 
But there's not one bit of evidence tying Leonard Christopher to any of the other murders. He died of cancer while serving his sentence in prison. In later years, a report surfaces of police having information about a guy who was posing as a counselor with an office inside a Frankfurt church and befriending women in the local bars offering counseling services. The women seen with this man, apparently, were never seen again. Police came out in 2010 and said they were close to arresting this guy at one time, but he fled the area and disappeared, but not before they grabbed his DNA. Then they found out he had died. They've never named him. In 2019, law enforcement said that technology had finally caught up to being able to test the little bit of forensics they have in the cases. And they submitted this man's DNA for comparison. So far, no word has been announced about the results. There's all new detectives on this now. I mean, this isn't attributed to anybody from the 80s when they targeted Leonard Christopher. And look, I mean, he could be the guy. Yep. He, he could be the guy. I mean, he certainly circumstantially fits into it. However, I just have a big problem with the fact that you can't brutalize women the way he did. The slasher, I mean. And basically, like a surgeon, gut them and not have any type of evidence on you or at your yeah. apartment or whatever on your clothes. So either they didn't check his apartment thoroughly or he wore a freaking hazmat suit when he did it. That's a really good point, because especially, you know, when you were describing him, he's a little messy. You know, he's kind of drunk. He's, you know, rabble rousing right. and this other stuff. He's like, aloof. He's not, He's a loop. Right. He's not this precise killer right. who's not leaving any evidence behind. Right. And Look, if I had to bet on this, I would bet it's one of the white men in that composite sketch of three guys. Absolutely sure of that. I'm absolutely sure it's the guy from the church, the counselor who took off. As soon as they started investigating these cases, he booked, right? As soon as they start to get onto Leonard Christopher for the Dowd murder. He books, he leaves town. Yep. And this is right after they question him. And he matches one of those composites. Yep. Uh, yeah, I'm speechless. I mean, hopefully if they do find this out, they will be able to solve some similar murders that happen in another part of the country. Like if this guy moved. That's, that's a very good point. They could. Yep. And give more families answers, right. which, of course, is the most important thing. Right. That's it for this week. Be safe. Be aware. Catherine and I will be back next week with another true crime story. That much I can promise you. So you better, better, better subscribe. Sources for today's episode come from The Mammoth Book of Killers at Large by Nigel Cawthorn. Little Has Changed After Homeless Murder by Ginny Wiegand, Philadelphia Enquirer, 1788. Police Recall Frankfurt Slasher in Search for Kensington Stringler, Walt Hunter, CBS News, Philadelphia, 121010. Frankfurt Woman Killed, Serial Slasher is Feared, Robert Terry, Thomas Gibbons, and Michael Ruane, Philadelphia Enquirer, 12089. Philadelphia Woman May Be Eighth Slasher Victim, No Byline, The Courier News, 43090. Serial Killer Suspected in Frankfurt Slashing, 
Thomas Gibbons, Mark Fazlola, Philadelphia Inquirer, 429.90. Fat Chance by Max Haynes, North Bay Nugget, 3195. Crossing the Line is a production of iHeartRadio. It's executive produced by me, M. William Phelps, and iHeart executive producer, Catherine Law. Special thanks to producer Rose Bacci and EP Christina Everett. Audio engineering, original music, and sound design by Matt Russell. Additional thanks to Will Pearson at iHeartRadio. The series theme, number 444, is written and performed by Thomas Phelps and Tom Mooney. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.